to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to be reading from the Complete Jewish Bible, chapter 4, verses 11 to 18. Make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to earn your living through your own efforts, just as we told you. Then your daily life will gain the respect of outsiders, and you will not be dependent upon anyone. Now, brothers, we want you to know the truth about those who have died. Otherwise, you might become sad the way other people do who have nothing to hope for. For since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, we will believe that in the same way God, through Yeshua, will take with him those who have died. When we say this, we, bless it, we base it upon the Lord's own words. We who remain alive when the Lord comes will certainly not take precedent over those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a rousing cry and a call from one of the ruling angels and with God's shofar. Those who died united with the Messiah will be the first to rise. Then we who are left still alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. Let's uh, pause for a minute and um, ask the Lord uh, to take charge of our time together. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for how you speak to us. Lord, it's a miracle. It's amazing, Lord God, that you direct what is written on the page to each of us so that we hear you in our own language. And we pray, Lord God, for that to take place. Please, Lord, speak to us, we pray, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. On Rosh Hashanah, if you were here, the shofar was blown by Charles several times, including the Tkiag Dola, where you blow the shofar until you're ready to explode. Um, and by the way, according to tradition, um, on Rosh Hashanah, in all the different services, the shofar is blown 100 times. We don't do that. Um, but for us, the shofar uh, serves a couple of purposes. One is that it is a, um, a call to gather and to worship the Lord, and a call to repent. As David mentioned earlier, Rabbi David, um, it's both and. It is not either or. It's both and. It's on one hand, we need to get our arms around the fact that as believers, as followers of Yeshua, we need to be serious about sin, on the other hand, 
unlike what is often done in the traditional Jewish service on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we come with expectation that we, we do have atonement that has been granted to us. And furthermore, the second purpose for us of the blowing the shofar is that it reminds us of the mega shofar that will be blown at some point in time when Yeshua comes and will zap us and beam us. Um, and so uh, it serves both and, and and if you've been around the Messianic Jewish movement for any length of time you know that people often refer to Rosh Hashanah as being symbolic of Yeshua's coming and it is um, however part of what's unfortunately bound up with the whole subject of Yeshua's return is all kinds of silliness some of it is just plain silly, and some of it is actually um, pernicious and destructive. And I have lived long enough to see a number of those examples. Um, in 1988, there was a fellow named Edgar Weisenant who published a book that sold 300,000 copies. And the title of the book was 88 Reasons Why Yeshua Will Return in 1988 on Rosh Hashanah. Well, we celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yeshua did not appear physically. Then in 1997, there was a much worse example. Um, a couple named um, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles uh, who were given a number of nicknames, one of which was Bo and Peep, because they were committed to bringing in the lost sheep uh, to extraterrestrial bliss. Um, and by the way, Applewhite had a vision of the two of them as the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. You probably heard about the fact that um, th the police found 39 dead bodies of this cult and uh, they had killed themselves with cyanide and arsenic poisoning. Now, the, with them it was all kinds of mishigas, all kinds of craziness, uh, end time prophecy and new age and bizarreness. Uh, more recently there was a fellow named Harold Camping, a radio preacher, uh, who predicted that Yeshua would return to earth on May 20, 21st, 2011. And the righteous would fly to heaven. Whoa! Then after that, there will be five months of fire, brimstone, plagues on the earth um, with the final destruction of the world on October 21st, 2011. Uh, you probably had heard of the fact that Harold Camping to give him credit, um, went back on the air and said, you know, I really had no business doing that. And he repented, which I thought was incredible. You don't often hear of these kinds of prophets or self-proclaimed prophets 
taking responsibility for their false prophecy. Um, and these are just in my lifetime, folks. And I can go on and on and on. I just want to give you one other example. Uh, October 22nd, 1844, there were approximately 100,000 believers gathered on hillside and meeting places in meadows. They were expecting the return of Yeshua because of, of the teaching of a Baptist preacher named William Miller. He was convinced. He studied scripture and he was convinced from his study of Daniel 8 and 9 that Yeshua was going to return on October 22nd. As you know, October 22nd came and went, and Yeshua did not show up physically on this earth. This, by the way, was called, this event was called the Great Disappointment because many, many, many believers who had given all their possessions and were preparing for, for the Lord to come and beam them up that day um, underwent great, great crisis of faith and many of them gave up on their faith altogether. And, of course, as you can imagine, there are parallels in Judaism. Um, all kinds of false messiahs in the first century. Bar Kochva, um, who was anointed king messiah in the year 132. Shabtai Tzvi, who was anointed himself in the year 1666. And more recently, Rabbi Schneerson, um, who is still considered to be Messiah by some of his followers. So the point is, you hear all this stuff, and if you're like me, um, much of my formative years as a believer were bound up with all kinds of meetings that were connected with end-time prophecy. And that was part and parcel of, of the tapestry of my life and as you can imagine, part of the process for me was going, moving away from that into another ditch and basically saying, you know, these guys were an extreme. I'm not interested. And, and I swung to another ditch. And you find a lot of believers who are in that same ditch. You know, and that's part of reality for us. We tend to swing like, like the pendulum from one extreme to the other. There's still those today, many, many believers, who are obsessed, you know, with end-time prophecy. You know, they're convinced that God has given them a set of blueprints, you know, pushed a button, trap door open, blueprints came down, and they know precisely um, all the events from A to B to C to D, how it will happen, when it will happen, that to me is what cl clearly one extreme. Why is that an extreme? It is, folks, because the mysteries of God are not given to us to know in every single detail. Much of the time, God gives us broad brush strokes that we know enough to take care of the business He gives us. And... A, 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 a wonderful statement of that is actually found in Deuteronomy 29, 
29 where it states that the secret things belong to God but the things that are revealed belong to us so that we may follow and obey. And part of the silliness, the mishigas for us um, is to assume that we can deduce, you know, we can sit and, 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 and work out the patterns and do all these kinds of things and come up with precise understanding of how the end times will come. And if we come up with some kind of a pattern, folks, um, I suspect that God might have something to say about that. Something as, as in, uh, maybe you don't have all the details. We know, we look through the glass dimly, we're given as much information as we need, and we need to take what we have been given and apply it. So there's one ditch, the other ditch are the, f the people that take what I would consider an agnostic position that says, well, you know, I think the Lord is coming, we don't know, we're not sure, etc., etc., and that is also an extreme. Why? Because the Word of God gives us some basics, in fact, quite a bit of basic instruction about the Lord's coming not so that we would sit and and be filled with our own understanding and our own deduction but rather that we would have a basic understanding of two basic facts one is that at any given time God is in control who are like you say that's the big picture of end time prophecy God is working and secondly, the other big fact that needs to come out of end-time prophecy is the fact that God has called us to be faithful in carrying out the commission, the assignments that He has given us. That we have no business trying to fix to make things according to our perspective. And so this is our approach at the Yeshuatzion, is to park where Scripture parks. In other words, where the Word of God gives us all kinds of information, we take it and, and we build on it. And secondly, we choose to touch lightly on passages in Scripture where there's some ambiguity when we don't have all the details and we say, it's okay. I don't understand everything. I don't have to understand everything. Basic approach for us. And so the, the bottom line for us is that there's more to this life than we can see with our physical eyes. That's on one hand. On the other hand, we do not want to sit around like these folks, like the Millerites, uh, and get into an escapist kind of a mindset. Lord, this world is awful. I can't stand it. Um, okay, Lord, would you come and zap me uh, today? There's a balance. And by the way, as you look at, at Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll see that very little, comparatively speaking, is given to a prophetic explanation. And by the way, this is one of the most famous uh, passages 
in the New Covenant, in the New Testament about prophecy. But when you look carefully at it, you see that there are all of four verses that talk about what prophecy, the Lord's return, looks like. The rest of the chapter deals with practicalities. How do we li live life? And that's what Paul was concerned about. And by the way, this is in the book of Thessalonians, where in every single chapter there's reference to Yeshua coming back. So the Lord's return and end-time prophecy were very much on his mind as a needed uh, teaching for these believers. Not minimizing prophecy and what's going to happen at the end, but rather saying, okay, let's get busy doing the work of the kingdom. And it looks like here in this chapter, Paul uses good psychology. He wants, he is kind of getting them ready to get some pretty hard-nosed instruction about how they need to keep their noses clean. But he begins with a fairly positive kind of an approach. And, and I want to read to you a couple of verses just to give you uh, an idea. 4.1 and then 4.9. Finally, brothers, sisters, we instructed you how to live to please God as, in fact, you're doing. You're not terrible. We ask you and urge you in the Lord Yeshua to do more and more. Okay, you need to advance. You don't want to stay in a baby state. Verse 9, now about brotherly love, Philadelphia. We do not need to write you, for you yourself have been taught by God to love each other. You get it. You, you, you have it as part of your DNA, spiritual DNA. And in fact, you love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And by the way... Um, Thessalonica was the capital of this province. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do more, to do so more and more. In other words, there's affirmation. And this is what I love about the Word of God. You know, each of us has all kinds of yuck in us. I speak for myself. Pockets of yuck that are not delightful. And uh, we know that the Lord doesn't particularly like those pockets of yuck. And yet, God doesn't look to slice us and, and cut us down to, to, to nothing. Because the process of growing into maturity in Messiah is being encouraged and challenged to press on. And if we are totally discouraged and totally bummed out and in, engaged in self-flagellation, oh, I'm worthless, I, I just sinned, I did this ugly stuff, and I wish I could stop doing it, I've been doing it forever, and Lord, clean me, oh, I'm such an awful person. I imagine at least some of you know what I'm talking about. We need to hear affirmation from God, and that's what Paul is doing here. You understand what needs to happen, and you're doing some of it. Then he turns up the volume. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, sanctified in plain English means 
to be set apart and to demonstrate to the world that you are in fact set apart, that your lives are different. And by the way, this is where the, uh, the crime, in a sense, for us as, as a uh, worldwide community of believers, especially here in this country, is that when, you, when people look at us, they can really not distinguish us and how we live from the rest of the world. The, the stats about perversion and brokenness are essentially the same among believers as they are among non-believers. And so Paul is saying, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Kadosh. That your life... When people look at you, your lives will demonstrate to people that you belong to Yeshua and that there'll be no doubt about it. And then verse 8, he gets even stronger. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. In other words, part of what Paul is saying here. What I'm telling you isn't because I sat down and I figured this out and, and this came out of my wonderful imagination. Um, I'm giving you the Word of God as a, an emissary, as, as an apostle of Yeshua. And if you're not willing to listen to me, to, to what I'm saying, then you are really rejecting the message that God has for you to hear. And this is pretty awesome, folks. And furthermore, he says, if you reject my teaching, you're inviting God's severe judgment, punishment. And, and for us who proclaim the word of God, this is a sobering, sobering responsibility. Because despite our humanity and our weaknesses and our weirdnesses and so on, what has to emerge through the, the pots of clay, through the lips of clay, is somehow the Word of God. Each Shabbat, when you come through different parts of the service, I want to encourage you to come with an attitude that says, Lord, would you please speak to me today? And it doesn't need to be from these, from this part uh, of the service but all through the service through the worship and music through the worship and the liturgy through everything that is said and done come expecting that God will speak to you Amen. and say Lord here I am clean out my ears I want to listen give me ears that are capable of hearing what you want me to hear and give me a soft heart that I can then take what you're saying to me and act on it. Amen. Please, please, please do not be conditioned when you come to focus on the pots of clay. But rather come and say, Lord, give me eyes of faith to see what you want me to see. Ears that are tuned to your spirit to hear what you want me to hear. Because that, folks, is what life is about is hearing from God and following Him and doing His will. And then moving in that direction towards greater and greater maturity, greater and greater closeness with Him. That's our commitment. 
And then Paul gets really, really personal. He shifts from preaching to meddling. And, and I just want to read what it says here, folks. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Bless you. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not go, know God, that in this matter no one should, should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. And at least as I was preparing, I stepped back and said, what? You know, this is a passage about end-time prophecy. How does this all fit in there? Um, well, there are good reasons, folks. You, you may remember, if you've read Acts 17, how the congregation in Thessalonica was formed, that Paul had a very short period of time to teach and get these people grounded in the Word of God and in God's principles and fairly quickly, he was ch chased out of town. He and Silas had to literally escape uh, a mob that was, coming, that was coming for them. So these Thessalonian believers didn't have a whole lot of time to grow, to learn, to grow, to put things into practice. And Paul was really, really concerned about them, which is one of the reasons why he sends this letter. But if you know anything about Thessalonica, you'll know that Thessalonica is like Denver. It's like Metro Denver. It was the capital of the province. It was a center of commerce. It was a place of idolatry, of all kinds of idolatry. And by the way, in biblical times, you know that whenever you had idolatry, part of the picture was Pervert, sexual perversion and immorality of one kind or another. You know, they had these so-called sacred prostitutes, and I can go on and on and on. We're there, folks. We're there. We're, we're Thessalonica. And for me, it's very, very, very obvious as, as I drive to different places, as I leave my house, um, I pass by Fascinations, which is a large uh, porno store. And just next to it is Shotgun Willie's, a topless place. And I say, okay, I know where I live. And lest, lest we think that this is out there, we live in a polluted world, folks. I don't think I need to spell that out for anybody. And part of the pollution means that it rubs off on us. And sometimes it goes beyond the skin and it, and it works its way deeper for one reason or another. Both in terms of sexual immorality, in terms of, of pornography, in terms of adultery. And, and part of what boggles my mind, and I'm not pointing a bony finger here, part of what boggles my mind 
is that from time to time I hear people saying things such as, I'm not committing adultery, so it's okay for me to live together with so-and-so. Immorality is okay. Or an even worse example of it, the Bible does not forbid sex outside marriage as long as it is not adultery. I don't know about what Bible they're reading from. Um, Both the Torah and the New Testament is very explicit about the fact that God requires His people to be free of immorality. And by the way, that of course includes pornography, which some people have called a victimless crime, anything but. You may know that pornography comes from the Greek word pornea, which means immorality of all kinds. So let me pause here for a minute and quickly point out that sexual immorality is not a sin of all sins. And sometimes believers, you know, we, uh, we excuse all kinds of other sins and say, you know, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm not engaged in the big, bad, ugly sins. And by the way, part of this season for us is to come before the Lord in humility and openness and say, Lord, would you please put me through your MRI and, and your CAT scan, and would you please have your spirit, your Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, expose what's in me that is not pleasing to you, that I, that I need to repent And I want to repent because I want to be cleansed so that I can be healed and so I can be filled more fully with your presence, with your ruach. So again, sexual immorality is not the sin of all sins, but in a sense, it's a poster child of some of the sins that plague the body of Messiah. It grieves the heart of God and it gives Satan a wide open door to come in and establish beachheads or colonies in our life. And yes, we need to come in repentance. If that is a sin where we struggle, or if there are other kinds of sins that tie us in knots, we have to deal with it, but we have to deal with it with confidence because... The word of God says to us, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of two-thirds of our unrighteousness. Half? Of all unrighteousness, folks. This is the blessing for us in being the children of God. We come in confidence We come in confidence, A, that the Lord knows our junk and that he loves us nevertheless and that part of the picture is that he wants to bring about cleansing. He wants to go deeper and deeper with us and the challenge for us is simply to say, Lord, please do that. I welcome you to come deep or we can say, "Eh, no, thank you, God. I've dealt with this much. I'm okay. Um, please don't, please don't go deep with me. I'm not interested in uh, the yuck, the demons, whatever are there. 
That's a choice. Or else you can say, Lord, I'm going radical with you. Please come fully. Go deep with me. Do the cleaning that you want to do. If that's the attitude that you have, you have nothing to hide before God, folks. You have nothing to hide before people. You don't need to prove anything because you are sold completely to God. You're willing to say, Lord, come. And also part of the process means that you are confident in in God and you are not engaged in self-flagellation. Oh, I'm awful. I'm bad. I'm terrible. You should look at me. Because folks, self-flagellation, self-deprecation puts the emphasis on self and we don't want the emphasis to be on self. We want the emphasis to be on God. And yes, we have all kinds of junk. But hallelujah. That we're not battling sin alone. We have the spirit of God. Who is the Holy Spirit. Ruach HaKodesh. Who has been given to us. To work his redemption in our life. Paul then goes on to say, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work, so that outsiders will be attracted to what they see in you. And folks, a lot of times people are not because we tend to be judgmental of the sinners We had a, f- a fellow who came at, at the very end of the service on, on Rosh Hashanah. And um, he was brought by one of the gals that has been coming. And apparently he described himself as an atheist. Well, he really wasn't. Someone who is an atheist, is determined to prove there's no God. He really isn't. He is an agnostic. He doesn't know what he believes. And, and as I talked to him, part of, the pro- part of what came out was the fact that he looks at believers and he's put off by the fact that we are convinced that we have all the answers. And the truth is, we do not. We do not have all the answers. We know who does. And so because of that, we walk in humility and saying, I know what God has revealed to me. There are all kinds of things that I don't understand. There are mysteries, and that's okay. So when Paul says, learn to be quiet, mind your own business, what that means, at least to me, is learn to focus on your assignment and what isn't, what, what God has not given you to deal with, leave alone. Isaiah puts it this way. This is what the Lord God said. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your, is your strength. Get about the Father's business. That's what the end times are about, folks. Paul explicitly commands these believers to be prepared not with prophetic charts but to be prepared by doing what we've been told to do 
And in Yeshua's teaching, the so-called Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, that's where Yeshua parks a lot. Let me just read to you a couple of statements. Therefore, keep watch and be ready because you do not know the, on what day your Lord will come. This is Matthew 24, 42. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to, keep them their, to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that master, for that servant, excuse me, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. What is the Lord looking for us, from us? What kind of expectation does he have for us simply is to carry on what we've been given to do? I don't believe that if we knew that God was coming in 12 minutes, I hope that none of us would feel that we have to sprint and do something radically different. It would be my hope and expectation that we would say, Lord, we, we love you. We loved you before. We love you now. We're delighted to see you. And welcome, which is our attitude each and every Shabbat when we come, is we welcome the Lord's presence. We're convinced that he's here. We celebrate in his presence. And again, let me encourage you before you come each Shabbat to say, Lord, open my eyes to see you. Open my eyes to see you, that I get it, that you're here so that I can worship you and celebrate in your presence. Now, just a couple of words about the end time prophecy in Yeshua's return. Again, that's given for practical reasons. Verse 13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or who grieve like the rest of men who, do, who have no hope. And yes, grieving is a normal process. Mourning is a normal process for us when we lose a loved one. But for us who know Yeshua, we both grieve and at the same time we have hope knowing that we will see our loved ones. Both my parents passed away a number of years ago and I have no doubt that I'm going to see them and they're going to be in a whole lot better shape than they were down here. And this is not one of these uh, wishful thinking of, uh, oh, your friend is up there and he's looking down at you and smiling and et cetera, et cetera, kind of nonsense, which you hear a lot of times. It's a deep, deep, deep conviction. The other piece of that is, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Encourage in a sense of, hey, brother, hey, sister, press on, press on. Press on for what God has for you. Don't allow yourself to be discouraged to the point where you are downhearted and give up. Paul here speaks about the resurrection, something that 
he speaks about elsewhere. Something that Yeshua speaks about. He added the detail that our loved ones will come to be with the Lord and will be part of what he has in mind for the end times, like we will. He speaks about the fact that Yeshua will come in the clouds and he'll send his angels with a loud shofar, which, by the way, Yeshua also talks about. Part of the other details that we see here and in 1 Corinthians 15 is the fact that we will be transformed with twinkling of an eye. That's one-tenth of a second or less. We will go from being our human body the way, the way we are into something that is magnificent, doesn't have any colds and flus and etc. And it will be a complete transformation. We'll be just like Yeshua. And whether it appears pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or pan-trib, we can wrestle till the cows come home. I have my opinion. I'm sure the rest of you have your opinions on the precise timing. The only one who knows the complete and perfect answer is the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. He will take us. We'll be with Him forever. What else do we need to know? By the way, the word rapture comes from Latin, which, has, which translates the, the Greek for being caught up or grabbed. So it's going to be something that, that will happen very suddenly. The shofar will be blown. And Yeshua will come and will be beamed up. So that's the hope, that's the expectation. In the meantime, the Word of God says, Leave, live cleanly in a polluted world. Be sanctified. Get busy and be faithful in doing His work. And when you get down and bummed out, remember that there's hope. Yeshua's coming, but don't live in a cloud of fantasy and escapism. Be busy about the Father's business. Let's pray. And would you please stand? Our Father, we bless your name and thank you for your glorious plans that you have for each one of us who are your children, the glorious plans that you have for us as a mishpacha, as a body of believers. We thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful, that you have begun a good work that you'll complete it. 
Lord God, we pray for each one of us, Lord, where we struggle. We pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen within us the understanding and the conviction that your Ruach is with us, that he is at work, that we're not battling anything on our own, that we've not been called to fix the world, simply to do what you've put before us. Give us, Lord God, the wisdom, the discernment to, to walk according to your will, Father God, to walk pleasing of you, Lord, to do the work you've put before each one of us, Lord. Receive much honor and glory. Be honored in our lives, Lord, we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.